Good morning and welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. Today's message, we're going to take a little snapshot look at the life of John the Baptist. And the title of the message today is Lessons from the Will of God. Please enjoy. Luke chapter 3 this morning. If you have your places in Luke chapter 3, I'm asking you, if you're physically able, to stand one last time in respect and reverence to the Word of God. The Bible says in Luke chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trichonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas, being high priests, the word of God came unto the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. The title of the message this morning is Lessons from the Will of God. Lessons from the Will of God. Let's pray one last time. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you've given us an opportunity to be in your house and listen to your word. I pray that you'd bless us and I pray the power of God would be upon us in this service and I pray we leave different than how we came in. Thank you for all you've done for us. Be with our service this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. There is 18 years of silence between Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3. Uh, the last we saw our Savior, he was 12 years old and he was in the temple. And he was in the temple with the doctors and the professors and the Bible scholars and he was asking them questions. However, he wasn't teaching them, but he was just asking them questions. But the questions that he, were, he was asking, they were so insightful and they were so smart and they had to make the doctors think so much that the Savior was teaching these doctors without them even knowing it. And uh, that's the last place we saw our Savior was when he was 12 years old. And while we call it a chapter break, no doubt there was 18 powerful years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. I mean, from the ages of 12 years old to the ages of 30 years old, this whole span of Jesus' life took place. Now, no doubt it was during this time that his stepdad, Joseph, probably brought him into the carpentry shop and taught Jesus how to be a carpenter and taught him the family trade. Not only that, it's also a very good possibility that it was during this time that Joseph died. You see, after Luke chapter 2, Joseph is never mentioned again in the Bible. And so we're assuming that during that time, Joseph died. So in that 18 years, there were some battles and there was some heartache and there were some tears. But in that 18 years, we had a teenage Savior and we had a Savior in his 20s who grew up and kept himself pure and he kept himself holy and he kept himself righteous because Jesus had a job to do. Jesus had to fulfill the will of his Father. And all of this started here in Luke chapter 3. And, and what started in Luke chapter 3 was Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus' public ministry, it started with a man named John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was a great man. And 
We're going to take a little snapshot of John the Baptist's life and we're going to take a look at John the Baptist and we're going to see some lessons that we can learn from the life of John the Baptist that could teach us some things about the will of God. And what I have this morning is I have four great lessons from the will of God looking at the life of John the Baptist. So without further ado, let's get right into the message Number one this morning, my first point is this. It doesn't matter who's in authority. It doesn't matter who's in authority. Let me tell you something this morning. God's will is not determined by political circumstances. God's will is not determined by who's in office. God's will is not determined by who wins the election. You know, it's no accident that in Luke chapter 3, we get the time frame in which John the Baptist did his work. And in that time frame, not only do we get the time frame, but we get the political climate that John the Baptist lived in. It says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Now, they started with the emperor in Rome. And they went right down the line. They started with the emperor, and then they went to the governor, and then they went to the regional rulers, and then they went to the local rulers. And he went right down, they went right down the line telling you who was in charge in the time of John the Baptist. Well, the Bible starts out with Caesar Augustus. Now, uh, 14 years earlier, there was a Caesar. There was a Caesar in Luke 2. But this Caesar in Luke 3, this is a different Caesar than in Luke 2. This Caesar is Tiberius Caesar. Now, why is that significant? Because let me tell you, Tiberius Caesar was a wicked man. Tiberius Caesar was a wicked and brutal man. Tiberius Caesar, Caesar had started what was called the intolerance in Rome, where he went through Rome and each religion in Rome that did not recognize Caesar as God was purged out of the city. This is the same man that did this. Let me tell you something. Uh, Tiberius Caesar was a brutal man. He was a wicked man and his wickedness began to spread throughout the kingdom. Next, the Bible introduces us to Pilate. Now, of course, you know, the man Pilate, he repeatedly pops up throughout the story of Christ. You'll see Pilate's name mentioned many times in the Gospels. And history tells us what the Bible tells us, that Pilate was, a, he was not only a coward, but, but Pilate was a tyrant. He was most famous for going into the temple of Jerusalem and stealing money out of the Jewish temple in order to get money to build an aqueduct. That's where he got this money from. He'd go into the Jewish temple and steal it. Pontius Pilate, he was a, uh, he was a, he was a coward and he was pretty much universally hated as cowards usually are. Next, the Bible introduces us to Herod. Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee, and Herod's also known as Herod, as Herod Antipas. There's another name that he had, and uh, he would be known in the Bible as a fornicator. Herod would be known in the Bible as an adulterer, and he would ultimately be responsible for John the Baptist's death when he called unjustly for John the Baptist's execution, which, make, which makes Herod a murderer, among all these other things. 
Next, the Bible tells us about Philip. Now, Philip, uh, Philip, who was he was another tetrarch. He was the brother of Herod. He's kind of a, a smaller ruler. And Philip's role in this is it was Philip's wife that had the adulterous affair with Herod that led to the execution of John the Baptist. But you know what's interesting in this verse? It's that last name. You know, these first four guys, we hear about these four guys throughout all the Gospels, and we hear about these guys many times in the Bible. But that last guy, we only hear about him once, and his name is Lysanias. In fact, this is the only verse in Scripture where where you'll read about him. And that's interesting. It's interesting because for the longest time, the Bible historians and the Bible experts and the Bible professors and the Bible theologians, they've said they've attacked this verse. This verse has been attacked by the experts. The reason why this verse is being being attacked is because the liberals would look at this verse and say, ha ha. You can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible because history tells us that there was no Lysanias during the time of John. In fact, the only Lysanias that was around died 30 years before John the Baptist was born. So, ha, 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 you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the Bible. Obviously, there's a mistake. And they thought for the longest time there's a mistake in the Word of God. Well, just so you know it, a few decades ago, they were doing some digging around in a temple in Damascus, Syria, and they dug up some scrolls. And what do you know? There was a second Lysanias. And just so happens that this second Lysanias was alive during the time of John the Baptist. And, you know, I don't know why Lysanias is mentioned in the Bible only once. Some commentators have said that Luke was from Syria, and that's why Luke mentioned him. Maybe, maybe not. But if they can venture a guess, maybe I can venture a guess too. And my guess is, is that for 1900 years, God gave the liberals some ammunition uh, to, to try to try to prove that the Bible's wrong for one day for God to prove that he is right and they are wrong. Let me tell you something. It's always amazing that if you give archaeology enough time, it'll catch up to the Bible. And if you give historians enough time, they'll catch up to the Bible. And bless God, you could even get one day the scientists, you give the scientists enough time, and the scientists are going to catch up to the Bible too. They always do. But you know, if you take into consideration all the men that were in charge during the time of John the Baptist, it was not a. Uh, it was not a good. T- it was not an, to an accepting time. It was probably not a good time to be an evangelist in Judea with all these people in authority. And you know, it's never a good time for an evangelist to point his finger at the local ruler and say, "You shouldn't be lying with that woman. You're an adulterer." You know, that's probably never, never a good time to do that either. But you know, John the Baptist, you know, uh, he just did it. You know, let me tell you something. The kingdoms of this world are not a friend to the word of God. The kingdoms of this world are not a friend to our God. The kingdoms of this world are not a friend to the people of God. You know, the, the king, it's, it's no, in the very next chapter, Satan talks about the kingdoms and governments of the world and he says, Satan says that they've been delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give them. That's what Satan said. Now, let me say this. 
I understand that God is in charge. I understand that he calls the shots. I understand that nothing is going to happen unless God allows it to happen. And I understand that people are only going to do what God allows them to do. But I also understand this. I mean, I understand that the heart of the king is in the hand of my God. I understand all that. I recognize that. But at the same time, human governments and human kingdoms have always been ruled by their father, the devil. And until the day that Christ returns to this earth, he will inherit those back because Christ will inherit all things. Because I will tell you that throughout human history, human governments and human kingdoms have always been an enemy to the people of God. Human governments and human kingdoms have always been an enemy to the word of God. We have never been a popular people. You know, we ought to thank God that we live in a country like America with the great Christian heritage that we, that we have in America. However, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years? You know, our country's been going down for a long time, but it's like in the last 10 years, our country has completely been off the rails. Now, let me tell you something. The last, I'm, I hate to say this, but the last 10 years have not been the exception to the rule. The first 200, that was the exception to the rule. Because how our country is treating God right now, how our country is treating the Bible now, how our country is teaching the, uh, treating the people of God now has, is just like how countries have always treated God's people, how countries have always treated God's word, and how country has always treated our Lord. Just look at England. Just a few months ago, there was a man in England stand up the street preach and he was preaching the gospel. And then cops came and ripped the Bible out of his hand and put this man in handcuffs and dragged him away. And the people in the streets of England were hooping and hollering and clapping hands. It's coming here. Oh, oh, yes, it is. It's coming here. It's coming one day. They're going to come through those doors. They're going to get the preacher and they're going to put him in handcuffs and take him to the jailhouse. And let me tell you something. Once they come for us, they'll come for you next. It's coming. It's coming in our country. Let me tell you something. John the Baptist preached in a time with wicked emperors. John the Baptist preached in a time with wicked rulers. John the Baptist preached in a time with wicked governors. It was a wicked time in, in the land. And as the first century went on, it got worse and worse and worse. But let me also tell you, just like in those times and these times today, we don't need to look to Washington, Washington D.C. to get our authority. We don't need to look to the Capitol building to get our authority. We need Christians who will stand up and will spread the gospel no matter what, no matter who's in charge, no matter who's in authority, no matter what the political climate is. Like I said, there may be a day in America where we're jailed for preaching the gospel. It may be in my lifetime. It may not be. But when that time does happen, guess what? Me and you, we're going to have a choice to make. We're going to have a choice to make at that time. As bad as things are in this country right now, I can guarantee you they're only going to get worse. They're only going to get worse. Because as Christians, we must decide... That the government isn't going to tell me how to be a Christian. God is going to tell me how to be a Christian.
The government is gonna not going to give me my doctrine. The Bible is going to give me my doctrine. The government isn't going to redefine marriage to me. The Bible is going re- to define marriage to me. The government is going to tell me when life begins. The Bible is going to tell me when life begins. And bless God, if we go to jail for speaking the truth, what better reason to go to jail for than that? Why should we not get a bloody nose for being Christians when all through the corridors of history, Christians have been persecuted? Why should we be any different? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes from me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend of grace to help me on to God? And the name, the precious name of him who died for me, through grace I'll win the promised crown, whate'er my cross may be. Let me tell you something. God's will is not determined by who's in charge. God's will is not determined by who the president is. God's will is not determined by who the governor is. People are coming out. I'm running in 2020. I'm running in 2020. I'm running in 2020. I don't care who you are running in 2020 because my God's still on the throne. And Jesus is still coming back. Let me tell you something. God's will is not determined by the political climate. Let me also tell you this morning that God's will is also not determined by religious politics. God's will is not determined by religious politics. We see in verse number two, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. Now, Annas was the father-in-law and Caiaphas was the younger. Caiaphas was the actual uh, high priest and Annas was the retired high priest, but Annas was the one pulling the strings and Caiaphas was the puppet. And I know if we wanted to that we could run ahead to Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 23 and we could see how evil and wicked these men were. Let me tell you though, way before they hung Christ on a cross and way before they nailed our Savior to a tree, these men were wicked, wicked men. You see, because uh, when, when people wanted to come and if you brought your own lamb, to sacrifice in the temple, these men would charge outrageous taxes. And sometimes you couldn't use your lamb, you had to buy a temple lamb. And when when you went to go buy a temple lamb, you couldn't use your money, you had to use temple money. And so then you had to go over to the money changers and buy temple money. And where were the money changers set up? Right in the house of God. Let me tell you that every step of the way, every greedy, grimy transaction, these two men had their greedy paws in the lot the whole time. They had their hands in the pot and they were taking their cut, every transaction, everything that happened, they were getting a little piece of the pie. What they were doing is they were making a merchandise out of the temple. They were making a merchandise out of salvation. Bless God, they were selling salvation and they had their greedy paws in the pot every step of the way. Let me tell you something. The religious political scene in John the Baptist's day was a mess. But you know, the religious scene in America is not getting much better either. You know, the further we go from God, the farther we get from God. 
you know, the more sin and wickedness abounds in our country. Man, from false ministers to lying preachers that preach a false gospel, our country is littered with these. And what our country needs is our country needs some Christians who will stand up and will speak the truth no matter what, no matter how many feathers they ruffle, they will stand up and they will speak the truth. But let me tell you this morning that if you allow political circumstances and if you allow the religious establishment to stand in your way, then you are not ready to serve the king. But if you will say, I don't care which way the political wind is blowing. If you will say, I don't care what the religious establishment says. The only thing I care about is what does that book say? Well, then you are ready for the will of God. You are ready to be in service to the king. Now, number two this morning, I want to tell you the second lesson on the will of God this morning is God's will is for nobodies that live nowhere. God's, wills, God's will is for nobodies that live nowhere. Verse number two, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, if you had never read the Bible before and you started at the book of Genesis and you read all the way through the Old Testament and you got here to Luke chapter three and you read those words, you'd say, oh, you know, that sounds familiar. I've heard that somewhere before. You know, if you go back in the Old Testament and if you go back to the minor prophets, which I don't know why they call them the minor prophets. There's really there's nothing minor about the minor prophets. You know, if you love preaching, then you'll love the minor prophets because that's all the minor prophets are. It's just preachers doing some preaching. And, you know, when, when you read the minor prophets, you know what you realize about these guys? You realize that they were nobodies from nowhere. Oh, there may be a few exceptions. Somebody like Jonah, somebody like Hosea, maybe somebody like Amos. These guys were kind of inserted into their stories. But the rest of the time, you didn't know who these guys were. I mean, Malachi... We don't know anything about the guy. Uh, Zephaniah, you get one verse about him. You know, most of these guys, they just get one little phrase in the Bible. On a few occasions, you know who their daddy was. And on a few occasions, you know who their mommy was. And on a few occasions, you know who the king was while they were preaching. So you know the time frame that they preached in. And, but other than that, you get one, one biography verse and then that's it. And then you, after that biography verse, you get a phrase like this here. The word of the Lord came unto them. And you know, when you think about it, where they came from and who they are, that really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if Amos was a prince or if he was a shepherd in Judea, which he was. And then it doesn't matter if Zephaniah come from the slums. It doesn't matter if he come from a legal, a regal line, which he did. It didn't matter where Isaiah was from. It didn't matter Ezekiel's background of the pre as a priest. None of that mattered because when you come to the Bible, it's not about the man, it's about the message. It's not about the man, it's about the message. John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Let me tell you something. He wasn't Dr. John. He wasn't Reverend John. He wasn't Ph.D. John. He was just John. He's the son of Zacharias. And if you want to hear him preach, 
you're going to have to go to the wilderness. No, it wasn't about John. It was about the Savior. John, just like so many, so many servants of the king, they were nobodies from nowhere. Hey, John, what do you think about yourself, John? Oh, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. He must increase and I must decrease. He is the one to be exalted, not me. Today in our society, so much glory and recognition goes to humans that there's none left for the Savior. There's none left for the person who truly deserves it. And that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know what Jesus said of John? Jesus said, no, there's no greater man born among women. But you know what John said about himself? Oh, I'm, I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice. Maybe today you're like me and you come from a broken home. Maybe you're the first Christian in your family. Maybe you don't have a long line of Christian heritage. Maybe you have a past. I'm here to tell you today that that doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is in the business of changing names and your past does not matter. And if you're a nobody, if John the Baptist was a nobody from nowhere and these men in the Bible, they were nobodies from nowhere and they can do something great for God, then why can't me and you do something great for God? Because it doesn't matter the political, religious climate. None of that matters. If John can live for God during that time, me and you can live for God today. Now, let me give you the third lesson about the will of God this morning. God's will is the what, the where, and the when. God's will is the what, the where, and the when. You know, we've got the where here in verse number three, if you look at it. And he came into all the country about Jordan. That's the where. Okay, and then we have the what. Here, the next phrase, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's the what. So we have the what and we have the where. What about the when? The when is back up in verse number one. And the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. So that's the when. So John the Baptist has all three. John the Baptist says, I've been called to make a way for God. I've been called to be a voice. He knew, the, he knew exactly uh, what God wanted him to do. He knew exactly what, where God wanted him to go. But you know what's interesting? What's interesting are those 18 silent years. Those 18 years between chapter 2 and chapter 3. Where was John for those 18 years? You know, sometimes we know what God wants us to do, and sometimes we know where God wants us to go, but we forget about this little thing of when. Sometimes we wait on God to work, and we wait on God to work, and we wait on God to work, and when God doesn't work in our, in our time, we pick up our ball and we go home because we forget about this thing, this little thing of when. You know, I love the story of Moses. Moses was 40 years old, and that means that for 40 years, Moses had been educated in the educational system of Egypt. He had attended the University of Cairo for 40 years. And, you know, while it wasn't the first time in human history that writing had been a big deal, 
it was the first time in human history during the life of Moses which you could be taught how to be a writer. And in the educational system of, of Egypt during the time of Moses, writing had become a big deal. And the people who grew up in Moses' time were being taught how to be a writer. So Moses spent 40 years in the educational system of Egypt learning how to be a writer. Now, why would Moses, why would, why would God care if, if he wanted, if Moses was a writer? Hmm, why? Um, there's got to be a reason why Moses was taught to be a writer. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll figure it out as we go along. And, you know, and so Moses is 40 years old, and Moses, Moses knows the what of God's will. Moses knows he's supposed to be a judge, and he's supposed to be a deliverer of the people. Moses knows the where of God's will. He knows he's supposed to take these people here and take them to the land of Canaan. But what Moses is missing is the when. So Moses gets a little antsy and he tries to jump the gun and Moses messes up and Moses ends up killing a guy. And he tries to cover up his tracks and he pushes the sand over the mess he made and he didn't do a good, good job pushing the sand over it. And so Moses runs off into the wilderness and for the next 40 years, um, Moses is, is, in the, is, in the, is in the wilderness, in the desert. And he spends the next 40 years in the desert. And, you know, some of that time he actually spends at a place. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It's a little place called Mount Sinai. Moses spent a little time at Mount Sinai during his 40 years in, in, in the desert. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. I don't know what it could be. I mean, there's got to be a spiritual reason why God wanted Moses to be educated for 40 years as a writer. And there's got to be a reason, I suppose, why God wanted uh, Moses to learn how to live in the desert as a hermit and how to survive for 40 years in the desert, especially around a place called Mount Sinai. There's got to be a reason. Man, there's got to be a reason why, why God had Moses do all those things. Now, you know, so here's Moses. He's 80 years old. He's sitting around waiting for his Social Security to, 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 to come in. And, uh, you know, he's, he's sitting there, and then all of a sudden he sees a burning bush. He sees this burning bush, and the next thing you know, he's standing in Egypt with his brother Aaron. The next thing you know, and the next thing you know, he's bringing down plagues for about 15 months on the people of Egypt. And you know where it started? It started when Aaron struck the Nile River. Aaron struck their chief god. You see, other than Pharaoh, the Egyptians' number one god was the Nile River. God literally murdered their god when he turned the Nile River into blood. He literally murdered their god. Until one day an 80-year-old Moses said, you know what? Now I know when God wants me to do his will. God said God had him in school for 40 years and God had him in there and learning to be a writer. And, and then God had him in the wilderness for 40 years learning how to, how to survive in the desert. Maybe it was because God knew that Moses would have to go into the wilderness with his people and help them survive for 40 years. And maybe he knew that Moses would have to go on top of that mountain one day and write down the Ten Commandments. I don't know. Uh, who am I to say the God's reasoning for things? And, 
But what I am telling you this morning is that we get in such a hurry. We get in such a hurry to do God's will and we want things in our time and we're not willing to wait. And this thing of waiting on the timing of God, it fouls up so many Christians that doesn't have to. You know, let me tell you this morning, we may know where God wants me to go. Oh, God wants me to go to this church and God wants me to live in this city and God wants me to send my kids to this school. Oh, we may know what God wants us to do. Oh, God wants me to work this job and God wants me to marry this person and God wants me to minister to this group of people. And let me stop there. Every Christian should have a ministry. God wants me to minister to this group of people. God wants me to share the gospel with this individual. But it's this little thing of when. You know, for, most, for John the Baptist, it was 18 years. For Moses, it was 80 years. You know, some of us, we're going through things in our lives right now that we don't want to go through. And we can't wait for them to be over. Lord, how much longer are you going to make me live through this? And we don't know why we're going through them. Sometimes where we wait on God to work and we wait on God to work and we wait on God to work. And when God doesn't work in our time, we pick up our ball and we go home and we quit. See, but the thing is, is all I can tell you is that if you do what God wants you to do, where God wants you to do it, I promise you God will show up. Now, it may take some time. It may be longer than you would have liked. But... He will show up. Number four this morning, let me give you the last lesson of the will of God. God's will is limited by God's word. God's will is limited by God's word. In other words, it's never okay for me to violate the Bible. It's never okay for me to violate the word of God. It doesn't matter how I feel and it doesn't matter how big the need is. It is always the will of God for me to follow the word of God. Now, we have many names for our Bible, one of which is the word of God. If you study the Bible a little more, you could even say, call it the words of God. And if you study it even further, another name that you could write down the spine of this book is you could write down the spine of this book and you can call it the will of God. Because God would never want you to go against the word of God. So this, in essence, is the will of God, that book in our, in our lap right now. Now, if you, know, if you study this book carefully, um, you can not only call it the word of God, but you can call it the words of God and the will of God. And let's see how it looked to John the Baptist. Look at verse number two. It says, the word of God came. The word of God came. Now, me and you are lucky in the fact that we have the completed word of God. John the Baptist was not so lucky. There were some books still coming that he didn't know about. But we are lucky because we have, uh, we are blessed. Oh, I use the word lucky, so I got some evil looks. We are blessed. We are blessed because we have the completed word of God, you know, but for for men in the Bible, they never had to push this. Uh, what I'm telling you is men in the Bible never had to make something happen. 
They never had to go look under the rock for the word. The word, they never had to find it. The word just appeared. The word came. You know, it wasn't John's job to go make something happen. It wasn't Hosea's job to go make something happen. It wasn't Amos's job to go make something happen. It wasn't their job to create the message. God says, at the right place, at the right time, in the right season, when I'm ready, the word will come. And you know what? The word of the Lord came. It came to him and appeared to him. You know, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Now, the word of God in the New Testament is described in two different, two different ways. Number one, there's a very general word of God, kind of like you'd find in 1 Corinthians 1.18, preach the cross. That's a very general word of God. And the next word of God you have in the New Testament is a very specific word. Word of God. There are two Greek words to describe these two different words. And number one, you have logos, and logos is the general word of God. And number two, you have rima, and rima is the specific word of God. And in this Bible, the word, when it says word of God, it's talking about the rima. It's talking about the, when the word of God came for John, it was very specific for John. He didn't make it happen. It just came to him. Sometimes we wait on God's leading and we wait on God's leading and we try to force things and we try to kick doors open and we try to make things happen when really if we wait and we're doing what we're supposed to do, if we're doing the general word of God, the specific word of God will come when God is ready for it to come. You don't have to go out and kick under rocks and you don't have to go out and look under your car and you don't have to go dig in the backyard for it. If you do the general word of God, the specific word of God will come. Now we see how the will of God works. Let's look at verse number, let's start reading in verse number four. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, John, you know, John, you don't have the biggest crowd. You know, John, if, why don't you go into the cities, John? Man, John, what if you go to the temples and you go to the synagogues, then you have some big crowds. And, you know, it's funny, you know, John never went to the crowds. The crowds came to him. You know, John the Baptist, he wasn't the, you know, he's just a simple guy. He's just a simple fella. He didn't exactly get his suits from Joseph A. Bank. You know, he just kind of was out in the wilderness and he loved his, he loved his Bible and he preached his Bible. And, you know, John the Baptist, uh, if somebody would go up to John and say, John, why do you do what you do? So John will take him in the Bible. He'll take him over to the book of Isaiah. John will, people will come to John and say, John, where are you in the Bible? And John will take his Bible and take him to the book of Malachi. In other words, this was a man that could say, I do what I do because I have a Bible reason for what I do. And we need Christians like that today. We don't need Christians who'll say, I do what I do because mommy told me to do it. 
I do what I do because that's what daddy taught. I do what I do because that's what my preacher told me. No, no, no. We need Christians who will stand and say, I do what I do because I've gotten into that book and I found a verse and I have a Bible reason for why I do what I do. He says, I have a Bible reason for what I do what I do. You may be in here today and you say, Brother Brad, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, let me tell you this. I can't tell you what, what the specific will of God is for your life. But what I can tell you is that God never wants you to go against the Bible. God never wants you to go against the word. If what you're doing does not line up with this book, then it is not the will of God. When the Bible is your authority, you can never go wrong. Obey the Bible. Follow the Bible. It is God's business to open doors and close doors. It is not our business to run through and push open doors. It is God's business to open up the rest of the story. We are to study and obey the word of God. Let this book show us, show us where to go. There was a farmer, this old farmer, he just wanted to serve God. One day this farmer was in his field, he was working in his field, and he looked up and he, he saw a cloud, and that cloud was kind of in the shape of a pea. And he looked over beside it, and there was another cloud, and this cloud was kind of in the shape of a sea. So what this farmer did is he went and he sold his farm, he sold everything he had, and he started preaching. And then when he preached, he'd tell people, yeah, I saw that P and C, and it's, it meant preach Christ. So this farmer, he, he started preaching at this church, and needless to, needless to say, things weren't going too well. And each week he'd preach, and the crowds would get smaller, and the crowds would get smaller, and the crowds would get smaller. And one day, an older man who had been in the church many years came up to the preacher and said, you know, uh, PC probably meant plant corn. You know, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes we're looking in the wrong direction and sometimes we're looking the wrong way. But let me tell you, whatever God has for you, know that there is a good and there is a perfect and there is an acceptable will of God. And we are to live our lives proving that. We're to wake up every day proving that we're saved. We're to prove what is that good. And we're to prove what is that acceptable. And we're to prove what is that perfect will of God. And if we do that one day when we draw our last breath here on earth and we close our eyes for the last time, we will open our eyes in heaven and be in front of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we will hear the most precious words that any Christian can ever hear in all of eternity. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. hundred years ago, there was a Baptist preacher in America. He loved to preach about the will of God. One thing he said very often, he liked to say these words, to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. The will of God is not always easy, but the will of God is always right. That old preacher died and somebody went to his funeral and they went in and they looked in the casket and of course the, the preacher wasn't in there. He, was in, he went to heaven to be home. What was in that casket was just a shell. But what that people, what, they, what they, way they had done to their preachers, they took a Bible and they opened that Bible up to Matthew 6.10 and put it in one hand. And with the other hand, they took his finger and they laid it on these words, Thy will 
be done. And let me tell you, Christian, for all that's out there in the world, is there not anything more important for me and you to be on this planet doing the will of our Father and to one day meet Him face to face and hear Him say these words, Well done.